if there's a core message in the book, it's that this is an inherently political project and moment. That's the thing about emergencies like wars or climate. We don't win them alone. We don't win them as individuals. They're inherently collective. Hey there. Thanks for joining for another episode of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation, which celebrates the impactful work being done around the globe and shares the stories of the inspiring individuals who are behind it. My name's Aaron, and I'm the host of Impact in the 21st Century. In this series, we're focusing on the people working to protect our natural world, innovate greener technologies, and ensure that no one's left behind in the process. In each episode, I'll be speaking with an impactful author, founder, activist, or changemaker about the actions they're taking in this space. And in doing so, I also aim to tease out what we can all be doing to lead more impactful lives. But before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about something I'm deeply passionate about, Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education and refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning material, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to entire schools and communities. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to visit simbifoundation.org. And if you'd like to support Simbi Foundation and our podcast, we welcome you to follow us and leave us a rating to help more people discover the podcast. And on the show today, Seth Klein, Director of Strategy of the Climate Emergency Unit and author of the book, A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. Seth, thank you so much for joining. And how are you doing today? And where are you joining from? <laughs> nice to be with you, Aaron. Uh, thanks for the invite. Um, I am uh, on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, like you, apparently, otherwise known as Vancouver. Good to be here. Great to have you. You know, I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I'm sure you know we're recording the podcast episode just barely a week after the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, latest report tells us once again that we're just not doing enough and we're not doing enough quickly enough. And we're not going to be on track to essentially make a tangible difference in curbing our, our energy emissions. And these findings from the report have obviously been spotlighted in international media. And it's made me think that, you know, given that we're not moving enough and with enough intention, it just seems so timely that we're having this conversation on the backdrop um, of this urgency. And, you know, in speaking with you, the author of A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency, the, the, the book outlines a harder and faster approach and, and what that could really look like. And I, I'd love for you to just share for, for folks who have not yet read the book, what, what are the, the four or five major items, major topics that, that we can be doing to, to address this emergency harder and faster? Right. Well, uh, I mean, first of all, to go back to your point about the IPCC, it, it has been these IPCC reports, among others, that were part of why um, I changed focus in my own career to, 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 to focus on climate and to write this book, um, and because I was increasingly alarmed um, and a bit panicked about this harrowing gap between what the science says we have to do and what our politics seems prepared to entertain. Um, we live in an era of disconnect and where our our politicians, for the most part, with some notable exceptions, 
they don't deny the reality of human-induced climate change, but they practice, and this is a, a core idea in the book, they practice something I call the new climate denialism. And what I mean by the new climate denialism is when a, a leader in government or industry says they get it, but continues to pursue a policy agenda that does not align with what the science says we urgently need to do. Um, and where even as our governments start to slowly bend the curve on our emissions, they are not doing so at nearly the pitch that those IPCC scientists uh, say we have to. Um, so when I, when I set out to write this book, it was to tackle that gap. What do we do to bridge this gap between what the science says and what our politics is willing to do? Um, I had originally in the book outline intended for there to be a single chapter on lessons from the Second World War, because I had long been intrigued by the war as an example of rapid economic transformation. You know, like for all of us who have this, this concern, this doubt in our head um, that asks, you know, can we really do this wholesale transformation that's necessary in the short window of time that we have? I thought, you know, this is kind of interesting, this war story, um, because we did, in fact, retool the whole economy uh, in the space of six years, twice once to ramp up military production, another time to reconvert to peacetime. And uh, so I, but then as I started to dig into that research, I started to see more and more parallels and not just on the economic front, parallels between that emergency 80 years ago and this new emergency around how do you, how do you rally the public? How do you forge unity across political divides and regional divides? What's the role of inequality? What's the role of indigenous leadership? Uh, what did we do for returning soldiers? And is there a model there for just transition for fossil fuel workers? How did we pay for it? I just started to see more and more connections and parallels, but it was also, um, you know, I've been on the climate file for the better part of 20 years. It was making me look at that material through fresh eyes, through the lens of emergency. What does it look like and feel like when a society actually treats an emergency like an emergency? So that's the gist of the book. That's the original twist of the book. And, and the chapters are all, um, you know, each chapter is part history, part present around modeling what does cross-society mobilization actually look like. And what did you discover or what did you learn along the way that made you change your career and made you decide, I'm going to dedicate a, a chunk of time to, to writing this book? Mm. Well, I had been, uh, you know, I was the director of a social justice think tank for 22 years. It was great work. It was, you know, I, I feel very grateful for my time with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Um, I was director, so a lot of my time was in administration and fundraising and, you know, everything that comes with being an executive director. Um, I was already working on the climate file, uh, but not full time on the climate file. I juggled a number of files. And like I said before, I, I was becoming increasingly alarmed, wanting to spend more of my time on climate. But also when you, you know, when you work for a left wing think tank, you are forever in that space between, you know, here, here are these reports that we publish outlining what should be done 
and here's what our politicians seemed willing to or prepared to entertain. Um, so that's true across a whole range of areas, but it, it was, it's particularly jarring when it comes to climate. And I just had one of those, I just had a feeling like I, I wanted to dedicate uh, my time more fully to the climate emergency. Well, it's a noble effort and we need more folks like you on that. Something that that comes to mind, quite often we think about, you know, these brilliant people like yourself or or Greta or David Suzuki who are really making a change in the space. And there are times where I'm concerned that by seeing these, you know, celebrity activists, the general population can almost think, you know what? they're doing an amazing job. I don't need to do as much because we've got these remarkable people carrying the weight of this. When, when our listeners read your book, what are you hoping that they, that they take away that can equip them to actually start making change themselves? Well, uh, first of all, I don't know that uh, what you just articulated is, is all that common a thought in terms of what holds people back. I, th I think what's more common is a feeling of hopelessness you know, that, that nothing's to be done. Um, uh, or on the flip side, uh, you know, sometimes our politics is very clever at giving the impression that they are doing something more meaningful than they actually are. Um, uh, and, and everyone also feels very isolated. Um, I mean, that's why, uh, you know, to zero in on, on Greta in particular, what, you know, when I think about what are these transformative events that really shift the terrain, I think about these remarkable student-led mo mobilizations inspired by her um, that happened just before COVID hit us it, here in Canada in September 2019, a few months before the first lockdown, we saw a youth-led day of protest that was the largest day of protest in Canadian history, right ahead of a federal election. It, it certainly played a key part in changing how this whole conversation uh, is unfolding. But to directly answer your question, I'm heartened that the, you know, people who read the book find it an unusually hopeful book, um, notwithstanding how you know, dire the subject matter is. Um, because like me, I'm trying to, I'm trying to excavate from this 80-year-old story of the war, this reminder that we've done this before. We have mobilized in common cause across class and race and gender to confront an existential threat. And in the process, we surprised ourselves by what we were capable of accomplishing. I'm trying to do that in a way that isn't, you know, um, Pollyanna. Um, because the truth is any of us who follow the IPCC reports walks a razor's edge between hope and despair about whether or not we can actually do this in time. Um, but I'd like to remind readers and, and listeners and talks that I give that that same ambiguity was true for the million plus Canadians who mobilized and enlisted in World War II because they didn't know either if they were going to win. Um, you know, we know in the rear view mirror, we know how their story ended, but they didn't. And they did it anyway. Um, and that, so I'm trying to marshal that kind of spirit mm -hmm. um, and provide this example. I, ironically, you know, the book was entirely written before the pandemic. Um, 
but came out during the pandemic. And the pandemic, in its own way, also offers this example of how quickly we're capable of pivoting in the face of a, of a recognized emergency. So there's all kinds of interesting parallels across all of these, uh, across all of these emergencies. It's not a foregone conclusion that we will do what we need to do in time, not by any stretch. Um, but I'm not ready to throw in the towel yet, and I hope that comes through for readers. The piece that I struggle with is in the Second World War, when we think about any country and how they operationalized, there, there was a very clear enemy. And when you think about climate change, it just has so many tentacles, you know, being fueled on so many fronts, corrupt governments, food production, transportation, the militaries, like unknown consumption of energy. So how do you go about tackling these, these various sticky tentacles and, and how, mm. do you, how do you make a clear enemy? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, when you compare these different emergencies, there, there are similarities and there are differences. And at one level, the curse of climate change compared to the war, compared to COVID, is that it moves in slow motion. It makes it very easy for our politics to kick the can down the road. Um, that said, I want to like press back on one kind of assumption in your question, because I think many of us kind of loosely look back at that World War II history, and we think oh, well, back then the threat was clear and present. Everyone understood. Everyone was ready to rally. Not true, <laughs> especially if you were here in Canada. You know, the threat, if you were in Europe, the threat was fairly clear and present. Um, if you were in Canada, it was on the other side of two oceans. Um, and, the, and the public was not at all keen <laughs> about doing this. And so it took work. It took leadership to bring the public on board. It took, it took ubiquitous and consistent messaging, and it took certain events um, you know, that, that galvanized people, like the fall of France. Now, in our case, in the present, extreme weather events are those events. Now, the challenge is they don't happen everywhere all at once, right? Different pockets of the population. You know, one year Quebec experiences this devastating flooding, and then one year BC experiences this horrific and deadly heat wave. Um, uh, you know, so we don't all experience it together and that makes it additionally challenging. But here's the interesting thing, Aaron, when you dig into the polls is I would actually say that the public is, the, the terrain has shifted in terms of people's understanding of the emergency. Um, and, then, and that a majority of the public does understand climate to be an emergency and in many respects is ahead of our politics, both in terms of their, under, you know, their, their understanding of the threat and their willingness to um, consider bold, truly bold policy responses. Um, and we're kind of stuck in this awkward period that won't last, uh, but it's coming. Which tentacles do we need to tackle first? How do we how do we triage and rank order? I mean, I, I imagine we have the data, and I imagine that there actually is a database that I could go to right now that would tell me this information. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, from a climate emergency perspective, where where do we start? Well, first, 
let me answer this two different ways. So first of all, I always balk a little bit about like, what should we do first? The, the thing about approaching something in a wartime footing is, you know, you don't win wars partially. You either, you win them or you lose them. And mm-hmm. Bill McKibben has an expression about climate change that, that resonates greatly with me, which is um, uh, to win slowly when it comes to climate change is to lose. Um, it's just not how it works. So we actually have to hit all these fronts at once. We can't take them in stages. Um, that said, um, we, we can and should certainly uh, focus with great vigor. We know where the main sources of greenhouse gas emissions are. Uh, you know, they are the extraction uh, and processing of fossil fuels, the subsequent burning of those fossil fuels uh, in our modes of transportation and in our, in our homes and buildings. Uh, you know, those things alone are the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and, uh, and so we all need to tackle those things and we need to tackle them both through our own choices. But if there's a core message in the book, it's that this is an inherently political project and moment. That's the thing about emergencies like wars or climate. We don't win them alone. We don't win them as individuals. They're inherently collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means uh, we have to be politically organized to galvanize our politics into emergency uh, with us. Um, so that's, that. you know, that's some... Uh, uh, I think that provides some guidance to where we should focus our efforts in the book and in the work that I do with the climate emergency uh, unit, I take a somewhat different approach as well, which is if this is a political project, the question is how do you know when a government is actually in emergency mode? And you measure that less by what are they doing on transportation? What are they doing on buildings? And it's more about uh, an overall framework. And I offer up six markers of emergency mode. Here's how you know. You know when it spends what it takes to win. You know when it's creating new institutions to get the job done, like new crown enterprises and that kind of thing. You know when they move, this is a key one, marker three, you know when they move from voluntary and incentive-based policies to mandatory measures. Maybe we should come back to that one. Number four, you know when they tell the truth. They tell the truth about the severity of the crisis and what we have to do to confront it, and they're consistent about that. So each time a government approves a new fossil fuel infrastructure project or extraction project, they are, in fact, telling an untruth. Number five, you leave no one behind. So you, you, you connect it with that commitment to just transition for for workers in that area and income supports for people so people can know that this is going to unfold in a way that is fair and equitable. And number six is around the role of Indigenous leadership and the assertion of Indigenous rights and title, uh, which, as our politics, dithers and dodges, keeps buying us time by keeping more of these projects and their fossil fuels in the ground. Those are my six markers of when you know that we're actually headed in the right direction. I love those markers. So intuitive and also so memorable. Did, did you come up with those? Yeah, well, they, I did. Um, and they sort of bubbled, you know, when the book first came out a year and a half ago, 
when you're doing interviews like this and 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 writing summary articles, I, I actually have like a, a battle plan in the book, which is 16 points. No one's going to let you do 16 points. So you start trying to whittle these down and eventually you land with this shortened list of, of markers of this is when you know. And have, have we ever or have you ever seen a, po a political party or candidate propose a plan that, that actually checks off number one of spend what it takes to win? Uh, yes. So there's certainly candidates out there. First of all, you know, you and I are both in Canada. So let's just note that within the G7, um, our own country performs the worst. Uh, like on, on actually reducing emissions and tackling this in a way that's, that starts to practice what I'm getting at, every other G7 country outperforms us. Um, but none of those G7 countries hit all the markers. Um, and I can't think of any country that fully hits all of them. Um, but, but, uh, there are, and I, you know, I'm going to say something that's, a, that's, you know, accepted as biased as it is. Um, Vancouver has a, has a genuine climate emergency plan. The province doesn't, the federal government doesn't. Um, now, I say I'm biased because my wife's the Vancouver city councillor who moved the climate emergency motion, out of which came this Vancouver climate emergency plan. They, For a municipal level government, they certainly have a plan to spend what it takes to win. They're creating new institutions, um, uh, neighborhood energy utilities, things like that. Uh, but let's come back to marker th three that I flagged before, because this is a key one. In any city, about generally speaking, more than half of the greenhouse gas emissions are from the natural gas we burn in our homes and buildings. What Vancouver has done on that front is that they have said, as of this year, like this past January, no new buildings can use fossil fuels for space and water heating. And, and they've set a regulatory system in place so that basically by 2025, when your furnace or boiler goes and needs to be replaced, you won't be able to replace it with gas. Those two measures alone um, are going to drive about half of the GHG reductions over the next 10 years in this city. Those are emergency measures. They're years ahead of the targets that the feds or the province are talking about. And they communicate that sense of emergency. Um, so whereas if you look at our federal and provincial policies, you know, they have long lists of measures. Um, but what they almost all have in common is that they're voluntary. We're trying to incentivize, uh, we're trying to incentivize our way to victory, you know, encourage people, give, send price signals, give them tax cuts, give them rebates. We never would have won World War II by incentivizing yeah. our way to victory. You know, everyone is screaming and shouting Tesla right now. I, I mean, I'd love one too. Recently, I've been hearing a lot more chatter about just electric vehicles and, and lithium ion batteries actually paying a huge toll on the environment just in the cost of mining and, and getting the, the resources required. What, what are your thoughts on, on electric cars and, mm -hmm. and, and those batteries? Well, we do need to electrify everything. Mm -hmm. um, and batteries are going to be a big part of that, not just for cars. Um, 
So we do need to figure out how to go about meeting those mineral needs with as little environmental damage as possible. But there will be environmental damage. Everything has environmental. There's, you know, there's no get out of jail free card here. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, there's lots of evidence out there that, you know, the mining that's needed uh, for this electrification revolution um, doesn't hold a candle to fossil fuel extraction in terms of its environmental damage. Um, So I'm not trying to let it off the hook. I'm just saying, give it a choice. One is deeply more damaging. Um, And so we do need to electrify our cars. And uh, uh, I have done that, not with the Tesla, uh, with a cheaper alternative. You know, our our family has a a Leaf and uh, and an electric bike. Uh, Nice. The electric bike is a game changer in terms of our ability to get around the city as a family and its environmental uh, footprint is so much less than any of these other, other options. Um, And yet we don't encourage and incentivize electric bikes in nearly the same way we do for electric cars. Um, But here's the main point. When we really embrace there is a danger when, when people think about uh, where we go with climate change, that the, of messaging that says just, a, just electrify everything, swap out everything you do with fossil fuels with electric, and otherwise you don't have to change every, anything. That's all we have to do. And that's not true. Um, we do have to change an awful lot of things. And when it comes to transportation, what matters just as much, if not more, than moving to EV vehicles is actually changing how we get around, how we, how we design our, our cities and communities so that for the most part, people can actually walk or roll everywhere they need to go. Um, um, and where, in fact, it is an easy choice for people to choose electric public transit and realize that they don't need a car, period, uh, to live the good life that they're looking for. That's actually what we need to do. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Just on that note, I don't use a car at all, and I don't even have an electric bicycle. Just just pedal. With, right on. With, good for you. No, no, but the, <laughs> the electric bike is something that I would absolutely look into and, and have looked into. They're, they're fantastic. And, and the key thing with the electric bike, by the way, I mean, we, like, we slept our kids around pre-electric bike. <laughs> Um, and getting them to daycare and stuff. But there's no doubt that in terms of being able to reach the entire city with a kid, um, the electric bike is huge. Right. I mean, I feel like between electric bikes and honestly car sharing like Evo, you you really don't need You've met your need. Yeah. 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 That's what I do. And, and, And we need cities. So we need those systems in place and we need cities designed in a way, uh, that, that allows that to happen. Mm-hmm. Since we've been sh- just naming a quite a few different brands, would would now be a, a good option for you to continue with your thought on various? Oh yes, you're giving me an opening for a little chat. I think that we had off air. Sure um, yeah. Well, I only noticed just before we started uh, the the interview that uh, that a number of episodes of your show are sponsored by RBC, the the bank, and. Uh, 
and I balked uh, when I realized that, but you and I agreed we should just talk about it, which I think is the answer. Um, there's an awful lot of greenwashing going on. Um, so let's just uh, name RBC's role within the topic that we're talking about. They are fueling climate gas. They are the number one financier investor in fossil fuels in Canada, and they are number five globally. And a whole lot of that has happened since the Paris Agreement. Like RBC alone has increased its investments in fossil fuels by over $200 billion since the Paris Agreement was signed. Um, they are also one of the lead funders of uh, Coastal Gas Link gas pipeline that is proposed for Northern British Columbia over the objections of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary uh, chiefs. So without their consent and where the RCMP are forcibly removing people from their territory in violation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, so, so RBC has a problem. Now they are among the banks that have signed on to these net zero by 2050 pledges. And uh, what can I tell you? I wouldn't take that to the bank. Um, uh, I, I think you got to follow the money. And when you follow the money, um, they're not there yet. Well said, and truly appreciate you letting me and our listeners know. Uh, and that one's for you, RBC. <laughs> I guess the other question I have is, one of our major sponsors, which isn't listed, is uh, Shell Corporation. Let's um, talk about them too. No, I'm fully joking about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, great. Seth, something that uh, you speak about in, in A Good War is, is the role of uh, Indigenous people in the wartime context and, and now in, in the face of climate change. And, and what is this role, in your opinion, and, and how did you come to understand it? Bit of a dual role, I would say. I mean, one is is uh, a leadership role just in the transition. And if you look across Canada at uh, you know all of the exciting renewable energy projects that are happening, about a fifth of them are happening under Indigenous leadership. You know, far in excess of Indigenous people's share of the of the population. Um, but the second piece of it is around the, the the very assertion of Indigenous rights and title and how that fits into meeting this emergency moment. Um, I try to make the point in the book uh, with a story. Uh, as I was writing the book in 2019, I was listening to the radio one morning and, and a news item came across the radio about the death of Lewis Levi Oaks, the last of the Mohawk code talkers. Mm -hmm. um, in his 90s, um, uh, the the code talkers were indigenous soldiers who um, were tasked with using their own languages uh, to communicate uh, information among allied forces. Uh, because what was happening in the war is that the Nazis and the Japanese kept breaking the allied codes. And at a certain point, the Americans discovered that if you had two Navajo soldiers communicating in Navajo, they couldn't break it. And ultimately, uh, Indigenous soldiers got recruited from about uh, 33 North American Indigenous language, languages were employed, including many from what's known as Canada, including many Mohawk and Tlingit and Cree. 
uh, Ojibwe. Um, and um, when Louis Levi Oaks died, you know, there was these remarkable stories, like they had been sworn to secrecy. So he waited till he was in his eighties before telling his family what he had done. And then he got the congressional silver medal in the States and special awards from the assembly of first nations and the house of commons. Um, but as I learned about this, it just struck me that there was this incredible irony, right? Like these languages, North America, you know, Canada and the United States had spent generations trying to expunge these languages from the earth, li literally beating them out of children in residential schools, only to then discover in the war that they were the unbreakable code. That's what they were called, the unbreakable code. And, and, and credited with victories in, in certain key battles, particularly in the Pacific. And I thought, you know, isn't that interesting? Like, because if you fast forward to the present, in the same way, our two countries have spent decades systematically ignoring and abusing indigenous rights and title. And yet over and over and over again, it is the assertion of rights and title that keeps kind of coming to our rescue, buying us time as our mainstream politics dithers and dodges. And it's so incoherent in its approach on climate these indigenous-led efforts to block fossil fuel extraction um, are buying us time. And to put a number on that, just a, a number of months ago, the uh, in, uh, Indigenous Environment Network and Oil Change International actually did a report where they, they tried to tally up the GHGs of all of these indigenous-led efforts to block fossil and, and slow fossil fuel infrastructure that led to those GHGs staying in the ground. And they, they calculated it to be equivalent to about 25% of total North American emissions. I mean, <laughs> we total are... Total as in forever, like pre, from, from the 1800s? No, no, no. Like in, in, any, in, on, in any annual sense, I, okay. uh, it, it, it would be equivalent to about 25%. So Still huge. Um, it's huge. Um, like we should have immense gratitude uh, for what's happening there. And the more those indigenous rights and title is recognized and respected, um, the more we will get on ourselves onto the path that the IPCC urgently says we have to. Um, are there any, there, there's a book that recently came out called Code Talkers, right? Um, I don't know about the book. There's actually a, a movie, I th uh, uh, you know, a Hollywood movie um, with Adam Beach and Nicolas Cage that came out some years ago about it. Nicolas People Cage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just watched a film the other night called Coda. Have you seen that? Yeah. It kind of blew my mind. Yeah, it was great. Side note question. You're obviously doing a ton. When are you? When do you find time to to write a book? Is are you most productive in the morning, evening? Well, I'm not a writer exactly. Um, I mean, I, so I spent 22 years at a think tank writing policy reports. Um, uh, you know, they were good, uh, not exactly gripping reading, but uh, but good. Uh, uh, and when I wrote the book, I basically wrote it in a single year in in 2000. 19 and uh and it came out in 2020 
Uh, and when I wrote the book, it's all I did. Uh, I wasn't doing anything else. I, I'm one of these writers that, um, yeah, I'm easily distracted and easy to procrastinate with other things. So I just need needed to be focused on that. Um, and, and just to transition to what I'm doing now, um, once the book came out, um, the book is chock full of what I would consider true emergency ideas. And uh, I started to meet with political leaders across the country. You know, the funny thing when you have a book is you can get a meeting. The, on the flip side, you can only get so far when you're just a guy with a book. And, and realizing, having left the CCPA a couple of years earlier, I needed an institutional home again in order to build some political muscle, some drumbeat behind these ideas to put the pressure on our political leadership. And David Suzuki and Tara Cullis gave me a home with the David Suzuki Institute, and we created this thing called the Climate Emergency Unit. So I now work with a team of eight people across the country. And the model is to create coalition tables of the willing, we call them, coalition tables provincially, sectorally, nationally, behind the emergency ideas in the book um, so that we can get as many organizations, particularly from outside the environmental movement, you know, faith institutions, arts and culture institutions, um, uh, joining in sounding the emergency alarm and telling political leaders, this is what we mean by emergency. This is what we're looking for. Uh, so that's how I spend my time now. Uh, and my only writing is I, I write a biweekly column for Canada's National Observer, which are really a, a, another way of seeding emergency ideas. And if our listeners want to check out uh, this column, where do they go? Uh, well, you can just go to uh, Canada's National Observer and, and uh, I'm listed among the columnists. Um, people can access any of this both through my own personal website, which is just sethkline.ca, and there's links to the columns and to the Climate Emergency Unit, or you can go to climateemergencyunit.ca uh, and see the, the, the work and the campaigns that we're part of, and, and uh, uh, yeah, either route will lead you to all of this. We'll be sure to make sure that our, our listeners get those links and we'll include all of them in, in the description of the episode as well. Um, you know, with your work with, with uh, the David Suzuki Foundation and... The, the David Suzuki Institute, I should clarify. So it's, it's, it's slightly different because it's a, it's a nonprofit, but it's not a charity. Um, and, and that's partly by design that... Uh, uh, because this is a political moment and a political project. And so the unit will endorse candidates who we consider uh, to be real climate champions. Uh, and that's something charities can't do. Are there any candidates that excite you at the moment? Well, in the last federal election, we, in, we endorsed a number of climate champions. Um, in fact, one member of our uh, of our team, Anjali Apadurai, uh, was a candidate <laughs> and a very exciting candidate who came within uh, about 400 votes of winning in Vancouver Granville um, in a riding that was considered a write-off by her own party. Uh, you know, she was running as a new Democrat candidate. Um, but in, in, you know, this is, it's magic when somebody decides to truly run on a bold, audacious climate justice platform and to see all of these people, young people and older people, just gravitate to her campaign 
And in defiance of all predictions, I mean, frankly, I think if the election campaign had been uh, two days longer, um, she wouldn't be a member of our team. She'd be a member of parliament. Oh, and let me just say too, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, my wife is a political climate champion um, uh, in the city of Vancouver who, who moved this uh, emergency. And I think you, you identify these people in particular by that, that fourth marker, the willingness to tell the truth, even when it's unpopular or hard to hear about the emergency moment that we're in. And I think people actually welcome that. Um, uh, so the champs are out there. Right. When, when thinking about your wife, for example, um, and, and if, if someone's out there thinking, Hey, I want to get more involved in, in Vancouver based or, or Canadian politics, what, what sort of things would you, would you recommend they look for in a candidate? Well, I think you're looking for candidates who frankly are ready to ignore the advice of the conventional punditry and political advisor class who tells you don't say this you know because there's too many people who won't want to hear that Hmm. um i remember so when when christine my wife first pat you know she first brought forward let me give you the timing she was elected to office in october for the first time of 2019 And later that month, the IPCC report came out that gave us 12 years or 11 years at that point. uh, uh, Excuse me, uh, 2018. Mm -hmm. um, uh, And gave us 12 years to have our emissions. And so that that became her first motion for Vancouver to declare a climate emergency. And that motion gave the city staff 90 days to come up with a new city climate plan that would align with the IPCC targets. Um, and it included a bunch of bold measures that we talked about earlier. And when it was just ready to go public and she was asked, like, wow, there's some really kind of controversial things in here. Did you poll on these things? Uh, her answer was, no, it never occurred to her <laughs> uh, to poll on such things. Why would you do that? It had to be done. Um, uh, you know, and her, she understood her job to be getting it passed um, in a council that was very politically di- uh, diverse, right? There's no party has a majority in, on this council and they're all over the political map. And yet those motions did pass. And in fact, the early ones passed unanimously. And to give some further credit here on terms of how is it that across this politically diverse council, these motions on the climate emergency passed unanimously, you know, some of it is, you know, because my wife is very skilled at her job. Um, but what she would say is that, in particular, it was about dozens of high school students who skipped school each time these votes happened, who rallied outside, who spoke before council, who filled the galleries. And they basically made it politically impossible for even the conservative councillors to vote no. Hmm. Um, so there is this interesting... Um, combination of some dedicated senior staff who were really committed to this, a political champion, which you also need, who in this case happened to be my wife, and the outside pressure of, of groups, particularly the, these youth-led groups, all combining to actually give our city a genuine emergency plan. It, it continues to inspire and amaze me just how much our youth are able to to make significant change in 
I was speaking to Jane Goodall the other day, and she was talking about how they're investing all their efforts in in the roots and shoots movement, right? To 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 enable and to grow the, this grassroots leadership. And what what I'm wondering about with you is for youth, but also for the for the general population who are listening to this. What 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 can what's the first step in in us kind of transitioning or changing our journey or or our habits? If, if there's one thing that that we can do um, to to make it to make a difference, if we're feeling that sense of hopelessness, like this issue is just too big and we don't know where to start, mm. where, where where is point one? Where, where where do we begin? You're doing that thing again where you're saying what's the one thing? Um, but but look. There are the things we all need to do in our personal lives to lower our emissions. So we have to change how we get around and we have to change how we heat our homes. Those are the two key things. But my point, my core message in the work I do now and in the book is that if we are hoping that enough people and households and businesses will voluntarily do what I just said, Mm -hmm. we're fried. It has to be state-led. It ultimately needs a combination of carrots and sticks. The carrots are the supports, the money, and the sticks are the mandates. You need them both. Um, and, uh, and that means the one thing is that you have to engage in, po- in, pol- in, in a political project. You either have to, you have to back those political champions, uh, you have to put pressure on them, organize with others to put pressure on them all the time, and if none of that works, you have to run yourself. Um, if this isn't going to be state-led, we're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's the key lesson out of the war. To truly achieve speed and scale, it has to be state-led, right? State-led through the money, through the creation of new crown enterprises, and through the mandates. In World War II, let me, leave, let me give you this thought, Okay. Pearl Harbor, this is more of an American example, but it illustrates the point. Pearl Harbor happened in December of 1941. In February of 1942, two months later, the last civilian automobile rolled off the assembly line in Detroit, and for the next four years, their production and sale was effectively illegal. Now, all those factories were busy pumping out something else for the war effort. All those workers were working hard. Um, but, uh, uh, that didn't happen through the goodwill or patriotism of the big three automakers that happened because they were ordered. That's what it means to be in emergency mode. And so on that note, what is the single most impactful thing that as someone listening to this episode right now can actually do one link to take them to one spot? Well, first of all, go to the climateemergencyunit.ca uh, if you're in Canada. Um, uh, you'll see there the, mark- the six markers of emergency that I, that I talked about earlier. So the, the key, I invite people to use that as a tool for both organizing politically, assessing political platforms of candidates and, and, and parties, but also those six markers apply just as equally to any large institution, a faith institution, a labor union, a, a company, um, uh, uh, you name it. 
uh, all of these institutions in our own lives, um, you know, a school board, uh, a post-secondary institution, are they spending what it takes to win? Are they creating new institutions uh, to, to, to galvanize the change that's needed? Are they moving to mandatory measures? Are they telling the truth? Are they doing this in a just way that leaves no one behind? Are they centering indigenous leadership and, and, and rights? Um, every large institution can and should follow, follow mm. those markers. And I invite people to use it as a tool to organize with others in those institutions in your own life um, to say, here's the thing about emergency, Aaron. Emergencies in the end need to look and sound and feel like emergencies. Is there anything about our current provincial or federal government's approach or that looks and sounds and feels like an emergency to you? Or if you go to your faith institution or you go to your post-secondary institution, does it look and sound and feel like an emergency to you? And yet I'm quite certain that if you went to a faith institution in the war, or you went to a, you were a university student during the war, everything about the experience told you, communicated to you that you were doing so at a time of emergency. So we're not there yet, but I'm offering up a framework of a tools here, of, of markers, to try to shift our institutions into that mode. Seth, I've never heard this information presented in such a digestible and, and clear way. I, I'm personally going to be spending a fair bit of time navigating the site, or more than I already have, and I'll encourage our, our listeners to do the same. Um, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time, for sharing your learnings, for sharing your advice. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Impact in the 21st Century by Simbi Foundation. We hope you found listening to it as meaningful as we did. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to us on whichever platform you're listening from and leave us a review or a comment to let us know your favorite moment. Or feel free to recommend a guest for future episodes. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning material, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to entire schools and communities. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to visit simbifoundation.org. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and we look forward to bringing you more stories of positive impact in the next episode.